You're listening to the Fifth Estate Podcast, recorded live at the Wheeler Centre. In this episode, we go behind the broadsheet with Chris Mitchell, former editor-in-chief of The Australian Newspaper. He talks about the state of print news, politics and partisanship with the Fifth Estate's host, Sally Warhaft. Uh, Chris is, well, I think the longest-serving senior editor, certainly at the levels that he worked uh, in in our country until his retirement last year uh, as the Editor-in-Chief of The Australian, a job that he held since 2002. And previous to that, he was an editor at The Australian, at The Courier Mail, Editor-in-Chief of Queensland Newspapers, um, and uh, before that, well, well before that, a cadet in... uh, in uh, Queensland. So it is just a real pleasure. Uh, He's driven here from Port Port Ferry. Ferry. Uh, Please give him a very warm welcome. Thank you. Um, I thought, uh, Chris, that we should begin with a a bit of uh, background about you because a newspaper obviously reflects the character and personality of its editor, certainly of a strong editor. Um, and I, I feel like the first thing we, we need to understand, particularly here in Melbourne, about you is that you are a Queenslander. So tell us a bit about yourself. Yes, so um, um, we moved to um, Queensland in 1964 when my, my father died. He'd been a speechwriter in Canberra, um, died unexpectedly drowned, and uh, my mum, a German refugee, um, you know, had uh, his his family in Brisbane, so we we went back there, and she raised us there. Tell us something about Melbourne that we might not know about ourselves. It's very different from the rest of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I and and you know, you talk so much, and you write in your book, which um, making headlines. I should have mentioned that in the introduction. Uh, is Chris's memoir? Uh, you you write. Uh, in the book, obviously the Australian is the national broadsheet, um, but your mindfulness of that carries right through the book. Um, as a Queenslander who then obviously you spent many years in Sydney, uh, but I wonder what you can tell us about Melbourne as a newsman. Well, I, it struck me there were always plenty of good stories down here, <laughs> and, and probably, you know, both in areas of culture politics, the trade union movement, you know, Melbourne is very much the heart of parts of Australian life. But I also think it's important if you're running a paper like The Australian to think carefully about being a kind of glue for the whole nation. So, you know, I think if you had the age selling in Cairns or in Darwin, it wouldn't really work. Um, So you need to be, I think, quite mindful of how people will receive certain things in different parts of the country. And it always struck me one of the things we tried to do hard, and I think really one of the things Rupert sought to do when he launched the paper in 1964, um, was to be a voice across this huge continent. So one of the things that sort of struck me early in my editorship was the cost that we would go to to make sure papers landed all over the country every day. So you can buy a paper at... um, a great loss to the company um, in virtually any town in Australia on the day that it's printed. So those, in those that we now print in Darwin, but we used to fly papers that would go to the Kimberley from um, Alice Springs and then the train would take them further up to Darwin. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, it's a pretty sort of committed venture and the landed price for a paper back 20 years ago when I was editor the first time in the northwest of the country would have been $25. Mm. Um, so we lost a lot of money on each one we sold, yeah. Mm. It's always great ways for newspapers to lose money, isn't There it? are. Yeah. Thank God for publishers. much more clever about how to make, the, make that money, but we'll get to that. Uh, you, you refer in the book and when you talk about the paper as my paper... Um, and in that sense, you owned it. You, you always owned it. Uh, what's it been like to relinquish that? Look, I think you, you, know, you would have seen in the, in the book that I was quite you know, happy to go when I did. It's a pretty punishing schedule. And um, as my wife, Cathy, knows, it's, um, it sort of requires a lot of forbearance from family. And I think with the rise of digital publishing, um, and particularly 24-hour and seven-day-a-week publishing, you really do uh, never never turn off. So my Saturday mornings would start about 7am calling up the website and the, the digital replica edition and the app and firing off emails to people, and that was my day off, you know. So, you know, Saturday nights, maybe 11 o'clock, I'd go online before going to bed and make sure that all the cricket and rugby and everything has been... Because if you don't, if somebody doesn't take responsibility, it doesn't actually happen. Mm. So you, you actually do have to do that. And I think, you know, I was determined to try to have another life after 60. And so in the year that I turned 59, I let the company know I was going to go. There are some similarities, I suppose, to the sort of brutal regime with the, the politicians and their mm. families live. And when you read the book, it is... Um, unforgiving your your schedule. Um, in return, of course, what you have is a, um, a a situation over many years where there is not a single politician or prime minister in the land that doesn't take your call. Um, in fact, they're mostly calling you by the uh, stories in the book. Um, letting go of that kind of influence and um, access, you know, that access. What what's that been like? Because, I, I mean, a lot of politicians suffer from relevance deprivation, deprivation syndrome. Yeah. yeah, no, I've enjoyed letting it go. Um, look, I, I think I'm by nature reasonably shy. Um, so I did at times resent the imposition of, of politicians on my private life. Um, that said, you know, it's a wonderful privilege to, to have access to things that other people don't have access to. Um, I could not say that I have met anyone who serves the nation politically that I haven't admired. You know, the, the sort of... Um, the common tabloid or talkback radio view of politicians that they're all grifters and grafters doesn't really add up in my mind. You know, you see these people who hold down ministries in state or federal governments and they go to community barbecues on Sunday afternoons and they hand out prizes at school fates and, you know, they're never off. They're always on. And, you know, at some level, you know, if, if somebody takes money that they shouldn't have taken, well, you know, they deserve, you know, the criticism they get. But I also think the wider public probably doesn't have a great understanding of how committed they are and how long their hours are. Um, your book centres around uh, six people, five Prime Ministers, former Prime Ministers, uh, and Rupert Murdoch. And um, I, I'd like you to, for you know, the people in the audience who haven't read the book yet, 
um, to just give us your sort of candid impressions um, and as a way into it uh, to, to talk about the, the very sad trio of, of uh, Rudd, Gillard and Abbott, um, of which of these three, if you could have picked one to really succeed at their project, which one would it have been? Look, I, I can't really do that. I mean, I actually would have liked all three of them to succeed. Um, I think, like you, I've, I've known Kevin as a, as a personal friend outside of politics. And, um, you know, I thought in 2007, um, when Howard couldn't hand over to Costello, um, that the public was going to, to vote for a change. And it may well have voted for, for Peter. Um, but, you know, having learned the lessons of the failures of the, Gil of the um, Goss government in Queensland, I thought Kevin, who's always been fairly controlling in his ways, would have grown into a job like the Prime Minister's job. But, you know, you, you have a, remarkable stories like ministers who could not get to see Kevin in two years and he arranged to see them, you know, in the arrivals hall at Port Moresby, you know, and they were in the same cabinet as him. So... In a way, they were the sorts of behaviours that Kevin exhibited when he was head of the Office of Cabinet in Queensland. You know, so we all have flaws, um, and I think the more spotlight is on you, the, the easier those flaws are to see. But I'd say Kevin is somebody who had big ambitions for the country and, um, and a lot of ability, but not the personal skills to pull off the job. So, you know, he made you know, the same mistakes at 50 that he made at 30, which many of us do learn and he didn't. You know, I think similarly Julia is a sort of tragic figure, really, that um, you've got this woman who had, you know, reams of ability and much better interpersonal skills than Kevin, and everybody in the Cabinet at the time said that, and yet um, really defined by that one act on... June 23, 2010, when she decides she's going to roll her leader. Now, at one level, you know, Kevin brought this on himself, but at another level, that's the fatal flaw in the Gillard government. And as soon as polling went south for her, the old Kevin supporters were always going to undermine her. Now, you know, as the book makes clear, much of the AWU slush fund material actually was generated out of the Labor Party. It was generated by people who wanted Kevin to come back and replace Julia. So, you know, Rudd used to work for me at the Courier-Mail, so he, um, when he left the bureaucracy, he ran for office in 1996 and lost. And he was sort of broken-hearted. He couldn't really understand why people in the electorate of Griffith would reject him. Um, and I gave him a hint. He knocked on every he knocked on every door, so I thought that was a bad mistake <laughs> being confronted by Kevin on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> but um, but you know during that period, um, I used him to write features, a lot of them about China and trade between Queensland and China. And you know I thought he had a searing intellect. Really, he, he's quite a brilliant person. Um, you know, similarly, if you, you know, have private time with Julia and you get off the political machination, um, you know, Julia is an incredibly skilled human being. You know, a lot of people didn't like Tony and the way Tony conducted himself as opposition leader, and he was very combative, but I would say no more combative than, than Bill Shorten is. Tony similarly worked 
under me when I was a young editor. So Tony was an editorial writer at The Australian. And probably of the three, the person who is most self-deprecating and most fun in a social setting is actually Abbott. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting that, you know, Kevin, for instance, paraded his, his religion publicly as often as he did, and yet Tony is the one branded as, you know, the religious zealot, yet Tony would never appear before cameras outside church. He would never, ever do it. it it's the, the, the stories in the book that you tell about your private um, occasions uh, with these leaders, the other two are, are, are Howard and Keating, uh, are really telling for the insight they give into that, that these are real people and that often the media... Uh, with the incredible assistance of the politicians' own PR uh, machines behind them, uh, it's very misleading. What you uh, one of the really surprising things, for example, in the book for me was Tony Abbott's uh, response to the executions of Myron Sukumaran and Andrew Chan, which was a story I was very, very close to, and I was astonished to read in the book that he was devastated and lost sleep over that issue um, because, as somebody that was very close to the case, there was nobody involved in that case that, that knew that he was feeling anything about yeah. it. Yeah. So what is it that went on with Tony Abbott that that part of him and the part that every journalist, editor, I've, including myself... Uh, who's ever met him says he's a really nice guy. He is, yeah. Why could that never, ever come across? You know, in a way, I think it's similar in, in the Keating chapter too. You know, I, I sort of write about Keating as the funniest Prime Minister I knew. You know, in a way, in his private moments, he is the most engaging of the five. And I sort of feel with Tony and probably Paul the public didn't really see the private sides to their personalities. You know, we, we got a good look at Kevin when Kevin stood there the day after he lost office with his family and he cried and he, he went through his successes. You know, similarly, we saw the toughness of Julia. But really, I think Tony and Paul didn't ever open up um, their souls to, to public glare. Tony, well, I, I had a long talk with him that night at Kirribilli House about, you know, Chan and Sukumaran, and he was, you know, not only was he upset, he had done a lot of things behind mm. the scene. He, he, you know, he had gone to the International Court of Justice, he'd lobbied, you know, in Jakarta, uh, and he had a strong belief in the power of repentance. You know, in a very, you know, Jesuitical St Ignatius College way, you know, he had a view that these young men should be able to repent and reform. You know, so he, he understood what they'd done wrong, but he believed the system should give them another chance. Yeah. Um, there's a terrific story in the book, actually, of Keating at a, a 95 pre-budget lock-up of you going into his office and him serving you silver service tea himself and sitting what sounds like on the edge of your seat and explaining in 90 minutes, which you said was the longest you ever spent in an office, uh, yeah. explaining, answering every single question that you, that you wanted to know. And it, it made me wonder, how would you compare the 
the political health in terms of intellect and ideas, for example, of circa 19, late, late 80s, early 90s, so uh, Hawke, Keating, Button, Dawkins, Blewett, uh, with today Turnbull, Morrison, Dutton, Bishop, Coleman, yeah. Pine, Cash. That's a good question. Um, look, I think that was the great era, wasn't it? The great era of reform politics in Australia. And, you know, I, th I think the point of the story about, about Paul engaging with a Queensland newspaper editor about what I would pick out of the budget for Queenslanders was that he knew that was the state that at the next federal election he needed most to, to turn back towards Labor. And he sat there with the huge fat, you know, uh, fountain pen and ostentatiously wrote notes on my copy of the budget. And, and it was hilarious. And Did you keep them? I, no, I didn't keep them. Oh, I really wish I had bummer, it. Um, yeah. It was the big Mont Blanc, the black, the black one, yeah. And... Um, you know, to be erased. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose, you know, that generation from the 80s of Labor leaders confronted with a complete collapse in the terms of trade and growing comp competition from our region did tough things. You know, it's interesting that, you know, Hawke, as the leader of the Labor movement, was able to get the ACTU to agree to seven versions of the accord, which was really about winding back wage claims. But it set up the country for 25 years of prosperity. And it seemed to me that the little purpose of the Keating anecdote is the idea of engaging with journalists and selling the idea. I can remember at budgets in that period when Paul was treasurer, he would take Laura Tingle and others aside and he'd spend hours with them privately to persuade them of the rectitude of the measures he was introducing in that budget. You know, I think Howard said... Um, a few years ago in talking about what had happened to politics, that you need to be able to persuade as a politician. The art of persuasion is part of politics. And I think that's what we've not seen much of. I think we saw a lot of it from Paul and a lot of it from John. You know, whether you like John or not, he would get on 7.30 with Kerry O'Brien and he would argue the toss, even if they had to go overtime, he would keep battling. But, you know, it's all so stage-managed today. It's all so much bullet points. There's an over-reliance on social media that I'm yet to be persuaded actually has an influence on voters. So, you know, could Malcolm turn things around? Possibly he could. But I think he would need many more long-form interviews and he would need to open himself up to the electorate and try to tell the electorate what he was doing and why. And if you go back to last year's election campaign, does anyone know what it was about apart from jobs and growth? Like, it seemed to me they had the longest election campaign since the first Hawke re-election campaign, but they didn't actually really know what the story was and why the electors should return them. Well, and that, that's where we are a year on, isn't it? Nobody mm. knows what this government is about. Yeah, and, I yeah. mean, you, you look back again to that, you know, sort of 80s, 90s um, cabinet, the, the things that were able to be achieved against the traditional Labor interests. Yep. And, again, John Howard bringing in a GST, yep. um, really difficult sales pitches and now we have uh, governments that can't even seem to get through legislation on things both sides agree on uh, that and that the, that the population at large would like to have. Well you go back to the 2014 budget and um, you know Joe Hockey's 
uh, speech which he gave in London rather than in Australia. The end about of lift, Yeah, lifters and leaners. And then he did an interview from London with Tony Jones on Late Line. But where were the big discussions here, talking to people about the need to rein in the deficit? And, I mean, what's really happened during that decade, you know, and it's, it, it starts really with the end of the Howard years when they had so much revenue coming in from round one of the mining boom, that they don't know how to dispose of this money. So they start giving away baby bonuses and, you know, they buy off over 60s with, you know, $10 a week tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we go through the greatest increase in our terms of trade in our history. You know, the, the, the terms of trade more than double and nothing is saved and we come out the other end, a complete collapse. As, as we could forecast in every mining boom in our history, they always collapse. And we've got nothing. But we've built in all of this recurrent spending on the basis that this income that that's, we've been receiving at the highest point in our terms of trade will continue forever. And it seems to me that somebody, you know, whether it's you know, Bill Shorten or, or Malcolm Turnbull, needs to be able to have that discussion with the electorate and explain why we can't continue to live the way we are. Obviously, uh, the, the inability for them to do that and the terrible decline of uh, the, certainly the public sense of political culture is, is entwined with the media and the terrible decline of the media in the past 15, 20 years. Um, tell us, you know, reflect on, on that more broadly, the, the decline in the media, and then we'll talk about the Australian and its place in that broader tale. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing. The, um, the best year for profitability in print media um, was 2008. So it's not that long ago. That's kind of the high point for the industry, even though circulation had been declining for a long time. Ad revenues were strong and the economy was pretty buoyant. Um, you know, the challenge of digital, in my contention, I argue in the book, um, was mishandled by publishers. You know, publishers who really didn't understand anything about digital, were really digital dinosaurs, wanted to give away their best material because they thought that's what they should do because everyone else was doing it. So, so you've got over here a pile of revenue that comes from print products and a very small but fast-growing pile of revenue that's starting to come in from digital products. Now, the problem is accountants start looking at growth rates compounding of 15% in digital and they ignore the, the fact that 96 or 97% of your revenue in those days is still over here in print. Now, in my figurings, a 2 or 3% growth rate in 96% of your revenue is better than a 15% of bugger all over, over on the other side. And so, you know, we had, you know, I used to argue against it all the time. We give away Paul Kelly for free online and probably Rupert broke that cycle when he said in 2009, we're going to introduce paywalls. Now, you know, there are different kinds of paywalls. You know, probably Fairfax's paywall is more porous than the Australian's. The Australian is probably, with the fin, the hardest paywall to break through. But at least that established a growth platform in digital for us. Because where this is all gone, um, I think you find, you know, all sorts of digital publishers, whether it's The Guardian or anyone else have seen it, the ability for anybody to enter the market, the low barriers to entry means anyone can start a news website. So Mia Friedman competes on Mamma Mia with The Australian. They compete for the same advertisers. 
Now, you know, once upon a time, we were protected from that sort of competition because you had to have a billion dollars to build a printing press. It was very hard for anyone to come in. You know, Maurice Schwartz does it here. But it's very hard to start a daily newspaper and, and distribute a daily newspaper around a big state or a, or a, a nation. Anyone can do it in digital. So the ad rates that you were getting for digital 10 years ago, I used to count on 50 or $60 per thousand clicks. You'd be lucky to get 10 now. On a lot of websites like BuzzFeed, it's a dollar or two. So, and it's falling, and it's falling fast. Uh, on the Wall Street Journal, which is one of the most successful sites in the world, they're struggling to stay above $8 per thousand clicks. Now, they've got half a million digital users, so it's still a big pile of money. But I think what publishers are starting to see is they have deliberately got ahead of the curve on print, and print looks pretty good. So if you're, you know, Greg Highwood and you're running the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, um, you can see today that even, even though they are reverse publishing their websites and, and they've done everything they can to kill their former great newspapers, uh, these papers are still making 70% of the company's revenue in, in, as far as news revenue goes. So, you know, they've got other strategies, expanding domain, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we saw Greg a couple of months ago say they're abandoning plans to drop the Monday to Friday print editions. Now, I would say what they really need to do is not only abandon those plans, but actually start marketing them again. Stop being contented with 15% audit falls every quarter. It, it, your ideas about this and, in fact, what you did with this at the Australian have... have um They've got me thinking because, I, I, I mean, I've walked around for so long now just thinking every single December is going to be the last time I see a printed newspaper. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I'm not sure how long you realistically really think, you know, we will be able to go to the 7-Eleven and buy a newspaper. Yeah. But but the fact that they, they are still going and that that's where the revenue is and your explanation for that is very interesting to me. So too is your, um, and I don't know whether this was instinct or ob observation or what, but um, you, the very important emphasis you place on uh, the personality of newspapers and that, uh, that you need a different product for a different community. So talk to us about that. Well, I suppose when I got back um, to The Australian in 2002, I felt the paper... Um, had really mimicked the Herald and the Age. You know, there was much less focus on breaking news stories and they much more commentary, more commentary even than the Herald and the Age, and analysis of other people's copy, really. You know, I was talking to Lachlan about it one day, he came to see me in, Queen, in Queensland and he asked how I thought the Oz was going. And I said, well, I'll just give you a little tip. You know, you sell 95,000 Saturday Aussies in Queensland. It's the biggest... Queensland is the biggest sale for the Australian. And they haven't had... In those days, they had the big focus section. It wasn't called Inquirer, it was Focus, and it was the, the front of book four. And um, I said, they haven't had a Queensland story in, in Focus for 10 weeks. So my view would be you are completely abandoning your core demographic there to appeal to people who are happy with the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age in kind of Balmain and St Kilda. And I wonder why you'd do that. Mm. 
So, I mean, I suppose I made a judgment that the paper needed to move to the centre right, that, you know, there was no real value in traversing exactly the same territory as our Fairfax competitors, and that, you know, you needed to eke out a place in the marketplace that you could own, that you could own these readers who agreed with that position the paper had. I also think, you know, if you look at the audience breakdown on Q&A every Monday night, it's hard not to... Um, puzzle at the total number of coalition voters, and you'd add in one, na one Nation voters today, and say, why are so many newspapers, serious newspapers, I don't, I'm not talking about the local tabloids, but serious newspapers, why are so many of them only catering for readers on the left of politics? You know, is there a market there for, and you know, what do we know about people on the centre-right, they, they are more likely to be senior in business, they're more likely to be senior in politics, they're likely to be older, they're likely to be well-educated, and they're likely to have high disposable incomes, and they're likely to be very attractive to advertisers. So, you know, if I look at advertising in the print product of The Australian Today, the decision to remain a broadsheet and to target the, the people we've targeted has been the best commercial decision the paper's made in 53 years. So at the moment, if you look at um, the Oz, the Oz is pretty close to being back in profit again. And, you know, the Oz was really throttled by digital. So, you know, people think, you know, the rivers of gold at the back of the Fairfax papers disappeared. Well, we used to have 32 broadsheet pages of high-end job ads every Saturday in the Weekend Australian, and they're all gone. You know, that, that took, you know, 30 or $40 million a year out of the budget, the paper's budget. Well... With, with all that success of, of going down that road, my response to what you've just said, and particularly about the left-right, is that how big, potentially, is the constituency that's complicated? Because one of, the, one of the real dilemmas, I think, for politics at the moment, but media as well, it, you know, it, this, this such incredible, fierce attachment to left and right, and... Most people I know and meet and observe and hear in all sorts of places and different, you know, not just in inner city neighbourhoods, which, you know, I would say somebody's got to come to the defence of the inner city at some stage and say they're complicated, much more interesting places, inner cities of Australia, than the right uh, would, would have everyone believe. But um, there's no... Uh, you know, I, I read your ideas in this book and I see the, the achievements that you have um, as an editor with The Australian, particularly your Indigenous coverage. I mean, I, I would buy the, the, I, the, the Australian for that um, w without anything else. I certainly would have up until the uh, retirement of Nicholas Rothwell uh, as the Northern correspondent... Um, he still writes, but but not often enough. Uh, I don't I don't understand why it has to be so fierce. I, you know, I I do understand what you're saying, and I think you're right. Um, I think you probably know that in the end, the Oz is a more pluralistic newspaper than people understand. On some issues, on some issues, but so on others, it is it is blinkered. It's it's. I think if you go back to 1964 and the mission statement, is it, the paper is about economic reform, really. So I think, 
you know, the, the idea that Rupert had is a paper that advocates for a better and greater Australia. Now, you know, I don't think there's any other paper that does that. It's quite, it's quite a sort of firm view of what its role in the place is. So it's easily an easy advocate for the arts. It's an easy advocate for cinema. But it's also an easy advocate for a GST and for industrial relations reform. And some people on the left struggle to see how those things meld. And yet I argued, and we just agreed <laughs> during that earlier part of our talk, that in fact those tough reforms, like you know, um, you know, decentralising the wages system in the 1980s, had set Australia up for 25 years of prosperity. So what I'd say yeah, is, to get back to your left-right analogy... Yeah, because I, then I don't want to then be having to read a sense that, say, climate change is a boutique topic, mm. like, say, animal rights, in your words, that, that you know, they're in the same, in the same league, that, you, that these issues, important issues, serious issues, were sort of singled out as wars. And I would, I would love to know even how many more copies of The Australian would have been sold? Look, I think, you know, obviously Media Watch got stuck into the Oz last night over, over Lloydie's coverage of, um, of uh, the, the Reef. Coral. I would say Lloydie's probably on holidays. I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, Graham um, is an interesting fellow. He owns his own proprietary technology in carbon conversion. He's, he and his wife are setting up a large park at their own expense in the Amazon. He spends most of his life writing for the paper from the Amazon. Um, he owns two large yurts in um, Nimbin and he used to be the mayor of Nimbin. So, you know, Lloydie is not what um, Paul Barry thinks he is. Now, I personally, if I'd have been there, I would have insisted that we, you know, pick up the latest bleaching story. I, I would have. Um, I have, you know, a view that the paper has been a pretty centrist paper on climate change. Now, one of the reasons that I got criticised as much as I did by Andrew Bolt was because Bolt believed the paper was a left-wing paper <laughs> on the issue. So, and, you know, it, it, it's, and it's all over Bolt's blog, his criticisms of... Now, I, I ran lots of people on the op-ed page who didn't support climate change, but I also read, ran lots who did. And, you know, I got Tom Switzer when he was the op-ed editor to count them up and send it to Robert Mann and Clive Hamilton so they could see how many we wrote on each side of the debate. So I didn't take it as my place to censor people like Bob Carter, or, but I, didn't, I don't believe I promoted them in the way Andrew does. So my own view would be, as a paper that's involved in you know, a, a national project about making Australia better and greater, it's a, a cheap and easy thing to say, let's just shut down all the coal-fired power. We've, we've seen what happens when that... When that of, of course renewable energy is good. But, you know, my wife Kath and I have got a friend who owns a uh, former Mac banker. You, you notice the people who are most strong advocates for wind power are always Mac bankers. He, own, he owns some of the biggest wind farms in Spain. Now, and he says, well, this is fantastic because it's government-guaranteed revenue. I can never lose money. But you say to him, but Paul, do you think it's right for the country? And he said, no, it's rubbish. It's complete rubbish. <laughs> That's not... Now, you know, I mean, my view is, you know, renewables 
um, are part of the mix, have to be part of the mix. I've always been interested in new renewable technology, and I said before that you know Lloydy has his own technology investments as well. But I also think the 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 country needs to deal with a few facts that you know we're 1.4% of global emissions, we're the biggest coal exporter in the world, uh, our major trading partner. China is building hundreds of coal-fired power stations every year. India is building hundreds of coal-fired power stations every year. They are not turning off the coal. And probably when Kevin Rudd set up his carbon sequestration fund, it wasn't a bad idea. Like, we all, you know, turned our back on it when Kevin left. But probably if you are the biggest... And we've just become the biggest gas exporter in the world too. Probably is not a bad idea to have a good hard look at clean carbon you know I know it's very fashionable to poo-poo it but the world is not turning to wind wind is less than a tenth of a percent of world energy today the the prominent space though given to uh I mean climate change is sort of where we've landed on this there are yep. other other ones I could have chosen um given to uh denialists climate uh skeptics um that, that idea, the, the, the logic of that idea, to me, is... Science denial. Science or not. You know, if somebody tells me I, I've got cancer, I'm not going to go home and drink my urine and think I'm going to get better <laughs> because there's 40 blogs on the internet that tell me yeah. that I should. Yeah. I'm going to go to the best oncologist I could possibly find. Um, and I don't understand why... I've never understood why my sense from the Australian is that... The, the science has been singled out to be to be so um, dismissed, I suppose. Well, look, I, I don't think it is. So, look, I started writing the editorials about um, carbon trading when David Armstrong was the editor. So we're talking about the late 80s and the early 90s. I think the paper um, was a strong supporter of carbon trading when um, John Howard took it to the 2007 election. I mean... I think there's a, a, a position that Bjorn Lomborg takes, that do you throw everything the world economy has to mitigate, you know, 39... I think IPCC latest reports is probably 39 centimetres of sea level rise in the next 100 years. Do you throw everything at that and what would it cost? And how does it compare with ending malaria, which is the biggest killer in the world still? You know, everything is an opportunity cost in the economy. And, you know, I personally, you know, would not like to see people ignore climate change. I think the reason the paper has always supported the carbon tax and a, and a, and a carbon trading scheme is because it's a good way to get least cost mitigation. But some of the mitigation costs involved in schemes that are being subsidised under the RET now are at two and $300 a tonne of mitigation compared to carbon prices of less than 10 in Europe. Now, you, you know, I mentioned in, in the book, Julia and the cash for clunker scheme, the, the mitigation price per tonne of carbon abated in that scheme was $650. Now, it seems to me that logic tells you if your carbon tax is at $23, you don't then support an alternative scheme to compete against it that's at $650. So what I've tried to do is, like you know, the Copenhagen consensus and Bjorn Borg's um, 
Bjorn Borgs, Bjorn Lomborgs, <laughs> Bjorn Lomborgs. Um, we all remember Borg. <laughs> um, you know, I've tried to take an economically rational approach to it while opening up the opinion pages um, to views from all sides. But I think if you go back through the last 25 years, the editorial position has accepted that, you know, the government needs to do something. Now, internally, you know, a lot of people in the company didn't agree with that. A lot of people in the company thought we should be where Andrew Bolt is, you know, that we should just say it's a complete waste of money and the, the company needs to focus on getting the coal out of the ground and making us more prosperous. Well, I've taken the view that, and I think this is really the Turnbull view too, that you can't be a leading exporter of fossil fuels and have no involvement in international efforts to mitigate carbon emissions. You have to be involved because it, it's a big business for Australia. Does that answer your thing? I'm, I'm no, you I mean, it, no, but it, but it, no, but I mean, we've only, you know, we have an hour to discuss so a wide range yeah, of things, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, I, I guess now my thoughts go back to that, um, you know, that that fighting spirit of, you know, the the, the left right. I mean, it, it really drives me nuts, and yeah. uh, and it it's impacted only ever negatively on my own working life. What, what I see is quite a false divide that is nurtured incessantly uh, by a, a, a group of public figures with power, uh, poli in politics and the media mainly, uh, and some in academia and elsewhere. And, and I just, I kind of, uh, I, I just find it so irrelevant now, actually. And uh, and it, it always staggers me that highly intelligent people can still talk about it with such passion as if it's helpful and meaningful. Well, look, I agree with you. I mean, I think one of the points of the five prime ministers is that, um, you know, not only was Kevin godfather to one of my kids, the chapter about Kevin is the harshest of the five chapters mm. about prime ministers, and I think deservedly so, and yet Kevin and I remain in contact. The person who was most offended by those chapters, who really can barely speak to me to say hello anymore and is, you know, told, telling everybody who knows me that he'll never forgive me for writing it, is Tony. Now, well, I, I don't think that's why he's not talking to you, is it? <laughs> well, that would be one of a few reasons. But, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think the Tony chapter is actually quite funny. It's, it's the stuff about him and, and, and hockey playing footy together and him knowing hockey would never show up fit and sober for a Saturday match and he'd never pick him on the run on the team. Now, he said to me, well, why would you put that in the book? And I said, well, you, you're saying this guy is fit to run Treasury, but you didn't think he was fit as a 19-year-old to be picked in the run on side. Now, to me, there are questions about whether, you know, Joe should have been a welfare minister and giving money away like every big fat roly-poly person should. <laughs> and what's, what do you know about Peter Costello and... Peter Costello and Paul Keating were... They looked like people who took money from you, and, and, <laughs> and Joe doesn't. <laughs> but, but look, I think you're right about the right and the left. You know, I, I think, you know, these parties aren't right and left parties now anyway, really, are they? And, you know, if I, if I look at, you know, the right populists today, you know, if I look at Hanson or, you know, what's been going on in the UK and Europe and in, in, in the US... You know, I think the are they right wing? I mean, in many ways, they're big spending, old fashioned, you know, populists who look like Jack McEwen to me. 
you know, and and how does the Labor Party look now? I mean, it looks like Jack McEwen too, doesn't it? You know, there doesn't seem to be a constituency inside Western governments for growth. So if I ask myself, why is this? Well, isn't it really that there's a rebalancing across the globe? That, you know, we've seen billions of people enter the first world, you know, right across India and China and across Southeast Asia, and they're our new competitors. And over the next 100 or 200 years, we're either going to take a haircut as, as the world's economies rebalance, or we're going to have to work a lot harder. But, you know, there won't be any free lunches, and the guy who gets up early in the morning in Shanghai or Jakarta is your real competitor. Now, it seems to me that populists on the left and the right, those two terms again, they want to sell this snake oil that we can be protected from all this, but we actually can't. You know, we need to be smarter, get up earlier, work harder, and be part of the most exciting era in our history. So, you know, here we are as a world. We've got Elon Musk saying he's going to come out here and fix South, South Australia's electricity. We've got Tesla cars that are faster than my six-litre V8. It's a fantastic world. You know, we should be, as a highly educated society you know, putting the best and brightest of our kids forward to really take it on head, headlong rather than be part of this kind of retreat from history that I think Brexit and Donald Trump really are. Can you give us your reflections, not so much the, the ones in the book, because I think things have changed since then, uh, but about Pauline Hanson... Look, I mean, I, I sort of um, I met Hanson very early on. So as I say in the book, I got her uh, disendorsed by the Liberal Party. So she'd written a... Thanks a lot for that, Chris, because <laughs> probably if she'd just stayed there as a, yeah. as a, as a content backbencher. Yeah, so I had a very sharp chief of staff and he saw a letter to the editor that she wrote in the Queensland Times, which was the Ipswich paper, and it was a pretty racist letter about Aboriginal people. And... Um, we put the story about the letter on page one. The Queensland Times didn't realise it was a good story because she was the endorsed candidate for the seat of Oxley in the, in the, in the 1996 election. So um, Howard's office rang the next day. They wanted to know more about her and they disendorsed her that day. And history shows she won, you know, one of the safest Labor seats in the history of the party. Now, it seemed to me that in the following years... Um, you know, she unleashed something, which I don't actually believe is racist. I think it's a kind of a rebellion against poverty. I think if you look at those seats in the Queensland election in 1998 that voted for her, um, they were essentially blue-collar people who could vote easily for the Nats or for Labor. You know, they were the sort of AWU Labor voting types who might work on farms, etc., etc. And they had not done well at that period economically. And they were angry, and they thought... Ab study was some con, and their kids couldn't get it. They didn't realise Oz study and Ab study were essentially the same. Um, and you know, so you look at the the Mark II Pauline. You know, you've seen what she says about vaccination. You've seen Rod Cullerton's demise in Perth. I mean, it's the history is. I think that she is not in control of her political momentum, and I think that hasn't changed. So my view would be, rather than the Conservatives try to move out to the right to outflank her, they should just get on with their own game, because she'll implode and she always does. You know, 
That election in 1998, she managed to endorse 70 candidates in a seat of, in a house of 90. And I think most of them we, we managed to get dis disendorsed because they'd all been bankrupts and had criminal records. The party had no structure to vet its candidates. So and then you think, well, she's been to jail about this issue, about, about you know, I think, she, I think it was a bad thing that she went to jail because I don't think in the end, you know, somebody should go to jail just because they managed to get a lot of money from the Electoral Commission. She got it legally and correctly because they were votes she harvested. But by the same token, it seems to me that the mistakes that led to her jailing are being made again today. Mm. Um, you make the point in the book, the story you just told about um, not believing that the people that backed her early on, that they weren't racist, that it was about economics. Uh, and you, you make the link in the book... Uh, suggesting it's very similar with asylum seekers today. Uh, but you, you never made that case in the newspaper. Oh, I think we did a lot. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I had a lot of sympathy for particularly those Sydney western suburbs, Labor MPs like Chris Bowen and Tony Burke. Burke and I are good, good friends. You know, the, these people ha have large numbers of people who've come from the Middle East, and those voters are actually among the most aggressive about people who they see as queue jumpers. So it's quite an interesting phenomenon, isn't it, that you know, people who are refugees have a pretty tough you know, drawbridge approach to people who follow them. But, but my view would be that, you know, and unlike the Greens, you know, the Oz has always believed in a high immigration program. So my view would be that the nation needs to be pretty rigid about, about its approach to this issue so that you can continue to build an harmonious sort of culture in Australia. And we have been very successful at it. You know, people say this is the most successful multicultural country. I agree with that. But I think if you have, you know, 50,000 people coming by boat and 1,200 people drowning at sea and... You know, I think this was a, a, a scarifying thing for the Labor Party. I was sitting there with the Labor Minister the day that boat w went down... Um, you know, I was at Taboo and he was in tears. Now, nobody in the Labor Party who thought, you know, the Pacific solution was wrong believed that they would be taking the sorts of risks with people's lives that people smugglers were taking. But we've seen it all around the world now, haven't we? I mean, you know, we see the annual winter pilgrimage to Greece and little children dying on boats. So there is a real reason to maintain some order in the program, whether you're in Germany or in Australia. I'm not sure I agree about this thing of, you know, Australia is the best multiculti in the world. It's one, of these, it's one of these things that everyone just throws out. But really, I mean, there's very successful multicultural nations all over. The, we're very good at it. But um, are we really the best? Look, I think if you have a look at discussions about Hispanics in the United States, if you have a look at the northern towns in the UK, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Holland. The Dutch are going through a pretty sort of bracing, you know, challenge to everything they believe Holland has always stood for. I mean, I, th I think we actually don't see it that badly in this country. Although those countries you've just singled out, I would say all of them, if you turned on the news or, or, or consume the media in any way, you're going you're gonna to see a reflection of those countries' multicultural uh, lives much more than you see it 
here. You, you're saying you think the media doesn't reflect the, the, the reality? Not as well here, no. Yeah. I think it does it much better in many other places, um, particularly the ones you've singled yeah. out, probably. Look, I think it's, you know, you get people like Pauline saying, you know, we need to be, um, you know, praying for, for and, and having a royal commission into Islam. I mean, I, I took the decision a few years ago to give a Sydney man, Jamal Reefy, my Australian of the Year award. And the, the reason was, I believed he was one of the leaders of that uh, inner western suburbs Islamic community that had thrown up Khalid Sharif and Elamar, you know, the two really hardcore terrorists who'd, who'd been, you know, CFMEU heavies and had been drug criminals in Sydney before they went off to Syria. Now, I, and I think one of the things that the right doesn't get in this country, and people like Pauline don't get, is that inside the AFP and inside, you know, the counter-terrorism operations of all our major police forces, we are totally dependent on Muslim leaders who are trying their best to make sure that they are in touch with the law enforcement agencies, that they are monitoring kids who are being radicalised, that they are talking to the families and parents of these 14 and 15-year-old kids. So it sort of seems to me that, you know, Paul Barry criticised the ABC and Fairfax the other day for not reporting the story about um, radicalisation at the school in Sydney. Now, it seems to me you do have to deal with this openly and honestly. You're not actually doing the country a favour if you put your head in the sand and say there's no problem. There is a problem. You know, 14-year-olds are going and shooting people outside police headquarters in Parramatta. It's an issue. You know, the Newman Hyder story here, it was an issue. So, but is the answer then that we um, exacerbate the problem by making these people feel even more uncomfortable about being here. So I think what Hanson doesn't really get is that a lot of these crimes are being committed by second and third generation Australians. So Khalid Shroof and Mohammed Elamar's parents were, were immigrants. They were born in this country. So you can't, you can't sort of start, you know, exporting them back to Lebanon. The reality is they're Australians. Mm. If you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up, and if someone puts a microphone in it, start talking. Hi. Um, I'm really impressed hearing this conversation about the balance and your insights into a lot of things, but one thing kind of really made my blood boil when you were talking about climate change, but I, I don't want to attack, I just want to ask what you really think. You said that climate change was about 39 centimetres of sea level rise and therefore it's not, a, not as important as some other things. Now I was just wondering what other effects of climate change are you aware of because I think it's a lot more than, than 30, 39 centimetres of water rising. Yeah, no, of course it is, you know, and I, I think there are many things, deforestation is a big issue and, you know, obviously temperature rises if they, if they continue as they have been, will be terrible for the globe. I wasn't saying it's not important. What I'm saying is I think in any economy, you have to balance where you spend. And I think Lomborg makes a pretty good point when he asks, um, should we cure malaria for $30 billion or should we throw that $30 billion into more sea level mitigation? Personally, it seems to me you will get almost no value out of $30 billion worth of sea level mitigation. You know, if you're living in Bangladesh and you're constantly being swamped by um, high tides and stuff, it might look like a logical thing to do. But even in Bangladesh, I would, I would think disease should be eradicated first. So, 
I mean, my view would be the market will solve this, and the reason that the paper's always supported um, emissions trading systems is to get rational mitigation, so that the mitigation is not, as I said with cash for clunkers, at exorbitant prices for very little value. Everything in, in the economy has an opportunity cost, and if you're a passionate environmentalist, you should want the most bang for your environmental buck. That shouldn't be a controversial thing for me to say. You mentioned um, it costs like $25 to sell the Australian in Kimberley, and you lost about $40 million in um, executive ads. And somewhere around 1990, I think Rupert almost went bankrupt because someone called in a loan. Did, I was wondering how Rupert sort of financed the Oz. Was it from a position of debt and paying interest? And um, so, the, look, that's a wonderful story at the start of William Shawcross's book. You know, it starts off with this guy on the golf course in Midwestern the United States, and it's only a $10 million loan, and no one can get him to come off the golf course to roll a loan over, and the whole refinancing of the, co of the company depends on this bloke getting off the golf course. Um, it was a big issue. I spoke to Keating about it several times. It was, it was the systemic issue that that government was worried about because they thought if news tipped over, there was a, a, a very strong likelihood of a run on the Australian share market. The, the Oz is a complicated thing, and I think if you've worked at the Herald Weekly Times, you've seen similar things before news bought it. The Oz is a net contributor across the company because many of the facilities that produce and distribute it are already working. So no truck ever goes out from Melbourne, from Westgate Park, with just the Oz. It goes out with the Herald Sun and we sit on the back of it. The, the presses that are used to print the Oz, as soon as we've been printed, they're washed off and they print more Herald Suns. You know, so right around the, the, the country, we are contributors to those businesses, and they charge us commercial rates. So, so we're a profit centre for them. So, so in, in, at some level, you know, across the company, the company would be much worse off without the Australian. It's just, and I always argued internally and often lost, I, but I started to win a few, especially against Kim, that, um, you know, the the accounting systems needed to be transparent so that your allocation of resources at the Australian could be rational. If you, if you were being pr printed in Adelaide for the same price you were being printed in Melbourne, and we were, then we were being ripped off. So I produced a, a, a study that showed it would be cheaper for me to print all the South Australian papers in Melbourne and truck them than print them in Adelaide because Adelaide was charging us so much money. So... So the, the questions of the Oz's profitability are not really based around tax or, or any of those sort of concepts. It's about this being a boutique paper that is produced nationally by all of the associated companies within the group. Does that answer your question? I wanted to ask you about your relationship with Rupert Murdoch and also about your relationship personally and what his influence was in the company and your relationship with the CEO of News Limited and how that those uh, synthesise? So, um, you know, I'd recommend the book. So, um, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, the, the, the Rupert chapter is the longest chapter and I've been very frank, um, you know, so... And I think the company knew I was doing it. They weren't thrilled about it. Um, I, never, I never vetted it, so... I, 
nobody got to see it before it came out. But my view of Rupert is benevolent. You know, I think a lot of the critique of Rupert is pretty naive. Rupert's an 86-year-old man. You know, his views are pretty typical of most 86-year-olds, I would have thought. Um, you know, people say that, you know, he's um, only motivated by power. I think this is wrong. The, the man I know is an incredible Australian patriot. You know, he gets criticised because he surrendered his Australian citizenship to expand in the United States. Good for him. Why didn't Kerry Packer do it? Why was Kerry so happy to sit back in Bellevue Hill and never expand? Good for Rupert in going out and slaying the dragons and being the pirate that he was, you know? I mean, I think when he dies, you'll read a lot of people who will say he is the greatest businessman this country's ever produced. Now, you know, he, he fell out with progressives in London because of whopping, because, you know, he was determined to break the business model of, you know, the print unions. But without whopping, we wouldn't have had you know, the newspapers of London continuing for another 30 or 40 years. And what was the moral justification for Rupert having to pay for a comp room in which a third of the staff never, ever went to work? They were on historical deals by going back to their grandparents. So in my view, he is a generous, warm-hearted, shy man um, who never looks backwards, who is happy to walk around... Um, with his headphones on, listening to the latest music from London. Um, you know, a guy who at his age is hungry for tomorrow and has already forgotten yesterday. And I've got nothing but admiration for him. Um, there's a, there is so much in the chapter on Rupert, but the, the little sentence that jumped out at me was that in 24 years, you never once received criticism nor praise uh, for any campaign you did. Yeah. That's very zen. The, um, you know, we, ha I mean, I think I, I do say there were lots of disagreements. Um, there were lots of times that, you know, Rupert didn't approve of what I was doing. But I didn't caucus my paper with Rupert. And the idea that somebody can own all these movie stations and, and um, you know, pay television stations across Europe and the UK and the US and South America and he owns 200 newspapers in Australia alone. I mean, how on earth would Rupert know what I was doing every day? It's just a ridiculous concept. So I think what I'm honest about in the book, I think that the times when Rupert was most engaged with what I was doing was when there was an election on or if there was a political crisis. And, and you know, because he, you know is a quintessential Australian. Um, he is interested in the well-being of the country. Nobody gives more to Australian causes in the US than Rupert does, you know, and he bankrolls everything. Now, you know, the guy I know, you know, he comes out here for our annual internal awards, the News Awards, which are sort of our equivalent of the Walkleys, and he will fly in at dawn, um, have a shower in the office, come down, talk to all the editors, speak with everybody on the newsroom floor, go to host the news awards that night, leave at 11, having flown all the way from New York, get in his plane, go to the farm at Yass and spend three or four days walking around and talking to all the drovers. Now, look, you, you won't believe this, but you really do have to read the book to see it. I mean, he, I have seen him in the Wee Jasper pub 
at three in the morning, pissed with drovers, asking them about their latest divorce or their latest kids. And, and he does engage at that level. And good for him. That's it for this episode of The Fifth Estate. To browse dozens of insightful episodes from the series, as well as hundreds of videos, podcasts and articles taking on the world of books, writing and ideas, hit wheelercentre.com. And if you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and share it with a friend. Thanks. We'll see you next time. <laughs>